The battle cry of these people have, has always been either directly or mocked as being, could somebody think of the children? And I am thinking about the children because I want my daughter to grow up with a sort of untracked, secure, private internet when she's an adult. I want her to be able to have a private conversation. I want her to be able to browse sites without giving over any information or linking it to her identity. So I'm trying to protect that for her. I'd like to see more people grasping for that. This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Today's episode of Lock and Code is brought to you by Malwarebytes Privacy VPN. Want to obscure your web activity from your internet service provider? Want to hide your location from companies and websites? Want to maybe change your location so you can access the internet beyond your country or state's restrictions? Oh, that sounds like foreshadowing. Try Malwarebytes Privacy VPN by visiting malwarebytes.com slash VPN. Our main story today is about controlling the internet. On January 1st, 2023, depending on where you looked, the internet in Louisiana appeared a little different than the internet in most of the rest of the United States. And on May 1st, the internet in Utah also looked a little different, depending on what website you visited. And in the United Kingdom, should certain rules come into effect, the internet there will certainly look quite different, depending on what you are trying to watch. Okay, so (laughs) enough intrigue. What we're talking about today is online pornography. Kind of. In Louisiana today, visitors to the online porn site Pornhub are asked to first verify their age before they can access the site. And that age verification, it's not done through the simple kind of pull-down menu that's been accepted online for decades, where everyone probably just chooses uh, January 1st, uh, uh, 1980. Yeah, see, that's where my scroll wheel landed, so I guess that's when I was born. Instead, people in Louisiana today are asked to verify their ages through a service called All Pass Trust, which works with a Louisiana state-approved app launched in 2018 called LA Wallet. LA Wallet is a mobile app that was originally launched to provide Louisiana residents with a digital ID that carried the same veracity as their physical driver's license. Now... It's used to verify that a Pornhub visitor connecting from Louisiana is over 18 years old. The new age verification process is part of Pornhub's efforts to comply with a law passed last year in Louisiana that restricts online access to, quote, material harmful to minors, end quote. And while those words might sound broad and vague, they do capture the object of attention for lawmakers around the United States right now. 
At least 21 other states have introduced bills that seemingly seek to safeguard children from accessing pornography and social media platforms online. And I say seemingly because these laws would not make a new internet only for children, but a new internet for everyone. And to prove that, let's look at Utah. On May 1st, a separate state law in Utah to keep kids from watching sexually explicit material online came into effect. And like in Louisiana, the law in Utah forces companies that publish that type of material to keep kids away by verifying the age of their visitors. But Unlike in Louisiana, Utah has no digital ID app, and so the so-called solution for porn sites is to currently maybe collect just driver's license information from every website visitor from Utah. And for Pornhub, at least, that was too much. So on May 1st, the site blocked access to any visitor's who were arriving from Utah. If you are in Utah right now and connecting to the internet with an IP address located in Utah, you cannot access Pornhub. If you change your location, you can. Instead, you're presented with a message from adult film star Cherie DeVille who explains that, quote, As you may know, your elected officials have required us to verify your age before granting you access to our website. While safety and compliance are at the forefront of our mission, giving your ID card every time you want to visit an adult platform is not the most effective solution for protecting our users, and in fact, will put children and your privacy at risk. End quote. What we're getting at here is that in trying to restrict the internet for children, Utah has restricted part of the internet for everyone. Today, to help us understand the issues with age verification technologies, the data privacy implications for users everywhere, and why we can't create online rules for just some people in some regions, we're speaking with longtime security researcher Alec Muffet. Alec, welcome back to the show. It's good to be back. Nice to be here again. Thank you for coming back on the show. We are excited to have you here. And there is a ton to get into. And already in that intro, I feel like we touched on so many things. And so I want to start rather basically here, going back to this idea that proving how old someone is online and asking companies to sort of do that proof or maybe be responsible for that proof, that that is sort of this like key to allegedly making the internet safer for children online. Again, it focuses so much on proving your age. And my question here is, why? Like, Why is age verification, why is proving your age seemingly the quote-unquote solution that is being tossed around so much right now? That's a really good question, which treads on how we think about identity in the real world and how we think about it in online spaces. I think where it comes from and why we reach for it is at least I can speak to the UK for this. Um, adult content magazines and material have always had an 18 plus designation. And uh, in stores where they would be sold before they 
generally don't seem to exist anymore, as far as I'm aware, not popularly anyway, uh, they would be, always be on the top shelf of the magazine racks where kids wouldn't see them and wouldn't be able to easily reach them and so forth. This was an attempted sort of social firewall to prevent people, children, uh, young adults who weren't able or equipped to cope with adult content from encountering it and or being able to access it and buy it. This is a kind of imperative. This is how we tend to think about that, um, managing that content and protecting our children. So we immediately think, let's just transpose that into the digital online space. But this is where we run into a very fundamental issue of digital identity, and one that is kind of underappreciated, I think. We love, in the physical world, to think of identity in terms of credentials. Driver's licenses are terribly popular in the US. Over here, they're used as well, but passports are probably considered more de facto and are probably used almost as much when it comes to identity documents. But that is not your identity. The identity is the relationship that you have with the state. And the passport itself or the driver's license acts as a pivot of trust so that someone who wants to query that relationship for some sort of transitive identity reason to find out who you are or how old you are or something like that, they have in front of them a document which is hard to forge and uh, is clearly very important. It's uh, got data on it which has been checked and fact-checked and so forth. And it's shows, demonstrates that you are a person holding a piece of paper, and that piece of paper has photos on it that match you, there's a relationship again, and it says state of Utah or something like that, and it gives what your birthday is, from which you can extrapolate what your age is, and all sorts of information like that. So there's actually a cluster of relationships which all pivot on this credential, rather than the credential being the identity itself. Why is this relevant to the online space? Well, if we take a step back and look at Amazon as a metaphor. Very simplified. Uh, I realize there's a bunch of nits that you could pick in this, but to a first approximation, Amazon does not care who you are. You have an account with them. You protect that account with a password. You are the only person who knows what that password is, hopefully, and therefore you have a sort of isolated means of authenticating and re-authenticating yourself in order to maintain a relationship with them. And this relationship pivots off of the Amazon account and password. And so long as you order stuff and pay for stuff and the stuff gets delivered and absolutely nobody complains, you've got a relationship with them and there's no actual need to involve third parties or to, you know, prove who you are to the government and so forth, unless you're buying restricted goods. And this is where we start getting into the more edge case complexities. But what I want to focus on here is that identities are not credentials, identities are relationships. What we don't have anywhere in the internet stack is the ability to import a physical identity, date of birth, age, and eye color, all that stuff. You don't get that as part of a TCP connection. So there always has to be a pivot. There always has to be some other party involved. Now, on the open web as we know it, on the free and accessible, we don't have to authenticate you before you can read this document uh, web as it currently exists. Because there's no concept of identity baked into HTTP, it's an afterthought, it's quite literally an afterthought. There's no means to carry a relationship into most forms of web browsing. So what we are having to do in order to enable age verification and in order to protect children is 
throw away a whole pile of our basic understandings of how the web should work and splice intermediaries into that TCP connection, into that HTTP connection to fetch the data to resolve questions of whether you should be permitted to look at this. In short, as you alluded to a little bit earlier, we are having to splice an identity layer into the entire web in order to address this one issue, this issue which could be addressed by possibly other means. And it's only to answer one question of whether you are 18 plus, 16 plus, 21 plus, depending on what jurisdiction you're in. So it's very complicated solution for a very, I would say, niche issue. And then there's the question of whether the cost benefit is worth it. There are so many things I want to pry into immediately, because already this idea of identity being relationships, not credentials, makes me wonder if identity has mattered online in the way that it is with age verification. And what I'm asking there is like, like you said, with Amazon, right? They don't, like, it doesn't matter who you are, as long as the relationship that you have is you go to them, you purchase a good, they deliver the good, you're happy with it. That's what they care about until the edge case. And what I'm getting at here is, have we ever tried to insert identity into web infrastructure in the way that we're doing or attempting to do with age verification? And was it for like a different purpose? Was it not for restricting kids from seeing online pornography? Um, I know it's a huge question there, but it's also just, have we seen this before? Have we tried to insert things into the internet based on identity? And what happened with that? The answer for that is a resounding yes. Although it isn't necessarily just, as you say, for protective purposes. I've been online and doing security stuff since 1988 or even before that a little bit. So I've seen the whole of the web grow up and there have been any number of attempts to splice an identity layer into the web and to insist that um, the web needs a digital identity layer, that people need a digital ID and other stuff like that. We, we, there was... Oh gosh, I can't remember. Microsoft Passport, I think it was called, where you were supposed to log in with your Hotmail account to the internet and this would solve so many problems. There was a competing project from my employer, Sun Microsystems, back in the 90s. And there have been various other attempts to do exactly this. It's a highly desirable thing. If you can get yourself set up as the intermediary, you can rent-seek something terrible over the internet. You can coin money. Every time somebody makes a TCP connection and they have to refer back to you in order to prove who they are. It's a syndrome which we've seen, oh, there have been various online games which people have played over the years and you create your second life profile or something like that and invest a lot of time in it and then the game practically dies. Nobody uses it anymore. And so you've lost all that investment in this sort of monolithic identity. And the same problem exists. And also it's the same challenge for the, all of these identity companies. The internet doesn't need identity by and large. The internet needs strong relationships. And that's what things like HTTP, uh, HTTPS rather, and uh, heaven forbid, even stuff like passwords gives us. 
you know the old saying about authentication is something you know, something you have, something you are. Something you know is a password. And a password is the simplest way of dividing the universe into you and your relationship with Amazon versus everything else in the universe. The whole point of an authentication credential or a encryption key is to divide the universe into two, and that's what it does. It's us versus them. To invite a broker in, to invite a third party in and make your own life more complicated doesn't make sense. It is just adding extra risk. Now, of course, there are counterpoints to this, like where there's a service like, oh, I don't know, OkCupid or Tinder or Facebook or something like that, where you are trying to inject yourself into a community, then there are other people in that community and they all have Facebook accounts or Tinder accounts or whatever. And those identities in that community interact and trust each other and so forth. So it's like a little separate universe. But when you're talking about your relationship with a website in isolation, that is the thing which doesn't require a third party. I wanted to focus a bit on Pornhub's blocking of folks who are visiting from IP addresses based in Utah uh, and talking about how, how what that adult film actress, uh, Cherie DeVille, said. You know, she says that giving your ID card every time you want to visit an adult platform is not the most effective solution for protecting our users. In fact, we'll put children and your privacy at risk. I'm curious, what is she alluding to here? There are a whole bunch of risks which increase or are magnified by requiring people to give more data in order to even passively view a website. And I think it actually is much, much larger than Ms. DeVille sites. If data has to be taken and stored and logged and so on, then you are, of course, creating databases of usage and access tied against personally identifiable information to a certain extent, like IP addresses and so forth, or even usernames and home addresses and credit card numbers and so forth. So you're building up these sensitive databases, which if they get exfiltrated, give you risk of extortion and blackmail and embarrassment and suicide. Um, Examplars of that include the Ashley Madison hack a few years ago, where several people did commit suicide over the embarrassment of the resulting leaks. I think that is what Sri Deville is most likely speaking about. But it's also, in its own way, very self-defeating, especially considered against all of the uh, congressional hearings we've heard over the past few years about, isn't it terrible that platforms are collecting data about us? And now we've got government demanding that smaller <laughs> platforms, less capable platforms, yeah collect more data about people, especially children, when we're meant to be collecting less data about them. And it's really weird how folk were up in arms about Cambridge Analytica, and now sometimes the same people are applauding calls for age verification. On top of all this, if we set up an official infrastructure for 
age verification and providers of it and so on. We then have additional cookie tracking, which will make the likes of Google and Facebook pale into insignificance. We are, unfortunately, from an operational security standpoint, we are teaching people that it is okay to type sensitive credential information and credit card details into random websites in Russia and China and Ukraine and heaven knows where else. And who knows what will happen if that occurs. We are creating infrastructure for technical risk. This is something I learned about from when the UK first attempted to obligate age verification, where mechanisms to do one-shot zero-dollar or zero-pound credit card tests, you know, credit card check on or active card check, these things can actually be used by criminals to validate stolen credit cards. So you're actually providing a test vector for criminals who steal people's wallets to make sure that the cards are good so that they can then go and steal money from them rather than waste their time. And in the process, you also get free porn. (laughs) But then there's also social risk. Like you're setting up an us and them family dynamic for an entire generation of children, and we're going to lose that one as parents. Why would you set your own kid up against you in an adversarial way? Uh, if you read the Rolling Stone article by Cherie Deville, she says, there's an easy solution to this. We need smartphones and computers that are specifically created for minors and will block all forms of adult content, not just porn. And if parents give children those devices, everything will be fine. Except the kids will have 10, 20 bucks and just go get a burner phone. And I know they will do this because a friend of mine who is a noted security expert, but I won't name him, his then 14-year-old son did exactly that and circumvented all the filters which he'd set up on the home (laughs) to try and block porn. Kids are smart, much smarter than they're given credit for by the Age Verification Brigade. Why would we set ourselves in opposition to our children rather than look into trying to make them smarter rather than assuming and hoping that they stay dumb. Why not educate them about technology and respectful human dynamics instead? But instead of that, because that's hard and complicated, we're calling for the government to solve the problems through fixing the platforms because big tech has lots of money, doesn't it? We're focusing on a social ill and trying to solve it with technology, and that doesn't work. There are, again like a million things I want to get in there, uh, get into. I want to highlight something that you said, though, about the conflict that is happening where, like you said, just a few years ago, we had many individuals, I believe, rightfully upset about the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And we had, we trotted out Mark Zuckerberg to Congress to testify about what happened there. And it was seen as like this grilling of this individual about what went wrong and, and why are companies by and large, you know, not just Facebook, but but everywhere, able to collect so much data on us and, and why is there this entire sort of shadow economy of data brokers that, you know, collects and packages and sells and, and we're upset about data collection and then, you know, you just glance in a different direction and suddenly it's like, we should be collecting more. I think that's particularly important to hammer on just because some of these things are coming out of the same people's mouths. And it's, I'm not going to ask why are people inconsistent? Um, because that's probably a very different podcast and it probably lasts like uh, multiple hours. But I did want to just note it because I think it's rather important. Something that you mentioned here 
separately is that we're not giving children, I think, enough credit for how clever they are when they want to get around things online. They can do it. And similarly, we can do it. <laughs> like adults can do it. And so I see these things. I see this proposal, like you said, about, well, let's just make this phone and it filters everything. And then the obvious work around there is that a kid could buy a burner phone or they could get a hand-me-down from their brother, or, you know, their sibling. And I also see something like Utah's law and the way that adults get around it and probably kids as well is to use a VPN that says, hey, I am not connecting from Utah. I'm connecting from literally the state next door. And so all of this is to say these proposals have really simple workarounds, like the solutions, the proposed solutions to them have really simple workarounds. And my question there is, isn't that just a bit silly then to like push ahead with this when there is such a easy way to skirt it? I want to pick you up a little bit on what you said about, um, politely we'll call it inconsistent thinking. (laughs) Uh, Back in 2018, I attended a conference hosted by Baroness Kidron at the London School of Economics. And Baroness Kidron is one of the people who's behind the Five Rights Foundation and has been pushing for age verification in the UK and is behind several other laws, which then I think California has tried to adopt regarding age-appropriate design and other things like that. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's a big leader in that space. And what struck me was during the conference where one of the speakers was quite loudly railing at Facebook for implementing controls so that children would go to bed at t- on time and wouldn't be able to use Instagram at one o'clock in the morning or something like that, because mm-hmm. that would be terrible and they might encounter something which would cause them distress and so forth. Yeah. Being a nerd, I was sitting there thinking, well, yeah, but the kids is just going to change the time zone on the phone uh, so that it's no longer one o'clock in the morning and they'll just keep on happily Instagramming or something like that. Yeah. yeah. And more to the point, if you actually tried to lock them out of that capability, you would probably be in breach of GDPR because you have to give people the ability to edit uh, information about themselves, about what time zone they're in and so forth. Um, so I, I was nerding off like uh, about that. But it was just, he made these statements. He said how dreadful it was. He finished his slot and walked out. And then 15 minutes later, there was a different side discussion going on. And some of the panelists were gushing with pride about how their kids were showing them how to set up fake Facebook accounts to avoid advert tracking and how to lie about their age when they do it. And I, my, my jaw just dropped open. I could not believe that I had heard these two things within the space of half an hour or less. So yeah, we have got an awful lot of lack of joined up thinking here. But we're also focusing, and you and I are focusing on the positive risks. We talk about there's a data being collected and data could leak and people might suffer consequences and embarrassment and who knows what from data leakage. We're not talking about negative risks. We're not talking about, for instance, and this is going to sound silly, but it's a, the case in point, disenfranchisement of people who cannot meet the age verification barrier. So tourist immigrant, somebody who's just plain poor and is on a pay-as-you-go phone data plan or whatever, goes to Utah, is locked out because they haven't got the means or wherewithal to access adult content or anything else which has become age-verified. And I strongly suspect, for instance, things like Planned Parenthood will eventually come under that banner, which is I consider a big risk. 
Then you've got a universe of people who produce independent pornography. One of them attended the age verification demo where I first encountered the technologies. And she told me she would go bankrupt because she was going to risk facing um, 50 or 60 pence per user hitting her website. And so with 6,000 people hitting her website every day just to see what it's like and whether or not they want to set up for an account and things like that. She can't show them anything unless they age verify. She would be paying £3,000 a day and her site turnover was less than that per month or in the same order of magnitude. So two or three days worth of age verification would just bankrupt her in any given month. Uh, There's a company whose name doubtless will come up before the end of the podcast again is MindGeek who more recently have been taken over by some ethical capital firm. I forget the name exactly. Ethical Capital Partners or something like that. But MindGeek own Pornhub. They own browsers. They own a whole pile of big production houses. They own all the tube sites for viewing porn online without accounts and so forth. And they were one of the prime movers behind age verification in Europe and especially the attempts to legislate it in the UK. They saw a whole pile of revenue opportunities in there, not great ones, but enabling ones. It meant that they would find out more about their users and the people who viewed their sites, and this would give them a lot more insight and so forth. And they were offering to run a sort of freemium service for small and independent porn producers so that they wouldn't go bankrupt. But this would mean that all of the independent sites would be essentially... um, in thrall to these freemium services and would effectively lose a lot of their independence. It would lead to centralization, sentimentation, and almost officializing of platforms like, in nowadays, OnlyFans or something like that, because these are the only ones that would be able to afford age verification, age checks, and also be able to perform the services for independent companies. And then, of course, finally, it's the end of online anonymity, which, speaking as someone who works a lot with the Tor project and so forth, that really worries me. There is an awful lot of people who need the ability to browse the open web without having an identity trail because it is so valuable. I think that's uh, something that we should cherish and protect, and this strikes at the heart of anonymity. I wanted to revisit what you said there just a little bit ago about the costs of compliance and that it can only be afforded by some of the largest companies. Uh, like you said, that independent adult star who said that, you know, the age verification process for every visitor is going to cost certain cents a day. Uh, and that's going to add up and it's going to be something like, you know, 3000 pounds a day, which is more than someone could make in a month. And all of this is to say that the independent producer or star is not going to be able to comply. And so Therefore, their livelihood is going to be changed. It's going to be dropped. It's, it's, it's gone. Yeah, exactly. And it reminds me, and not to bring up like a bigger thing, but it feels related. It reminds me so much of efforts in the United States to make websites liable for what gets posted online. And so it's like saying, hey, Twitter is responsible if a Twitter user says something hateful or something that could incite violence or plans about a murder or a shooting. And Twitter then gets in trouble for not taking that down. And what that all means is that Twitter might have the money to do extraordinarily expansive content moderation at scale, but your random blog does not. And 
your random blog could have comments on it. And then there comes a point where, okay, does a person who just runs a blog to make their living similar to, let's say, like a Substack, but is not run on Substack, is not supported by Substack, it's just their own thing. If they're getting hundreds of comments a day and they can't moderate them and the liability risk is too large, they might just shut down. They might just say, hey, I can't do this anymore. My livelihood is erased. And all I'm trying to say here is, are those things related? Because <laughs> they feel related. Oh, they're more than related. It's a real risk in the UK where the online safety bill legislation is shooting in this direction and even more broadly on related topics. In a word, Wikipedia. They run on a shoestring. Uh, they don't have massive profit margins. They are phenomenally based upon user-generated content. Everything comes from essentially nearly random people contributing to Wikipedia. They can't do the Section 230 moderation type things which the UK is uh, requiring. And so they've just said they are not going to comply and uh, deal with it, guys. Uh, this is in the newspapers. It's caused a minor stink, but it's really hard to get traction on this topic. It's comical, actually, that this is a serious matter of technology, as far as I'm concerned, but the media are painting it as some sort of libertarian crazy thing. I don't know where you sit on the political spectrum, <laughs> and I, no, I sit very broadly in the center, uh, and I take pot shots in both directions. But... And the media coverage has, and a lot of the civil society criticism of it coming from child protection advocates has been, um, Jimmy Wales is a libertarian, therefore we win. I wish people would just engage with the technology and the, the actual technical discussions, but they don't. They are metaphorically sticking fingers in their ears and going, la, 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 you're all libertarians and we're not listening. I don't know how to like move past that, you know, like, I don't know, like, I don't believe, I, I believe that's actually the strategy. Yeah. <laughs> I think quite firmly that is... The strategy for them trying to see this through is to just not engage with the hard technical challenges and say anyone who is um, saying that there is a problem is simply not nerding hard enough. <laughs> the classic line, right? Uh, we spoke to the chief technology officer from, we've got an organization out here uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, when I say out here, I mean the U.S., Center for Democracy and Technology. She was talking about encryption, about the threats to end-to-end -end encryption, which have been going on for decades. And the problem has always been framed by one side, which is trying to build back doors into encryption, saying, oh, yes, there is such a thing as, quote-unquote, safe backdoor or a backdoor that only good guys use. Uh, kind of the always way I portray it is, like, imagine you had a bucket of water and you were told to make that bucket just as secure but put a hole at the bottom of it and then also say like oh but the hole's only used by good water um something along those lines and the argument is no it can be done you can do those things you just need to nerd harder you know it's the technologist's fault they're simply not trying hard enough we know this is possible because we have said it is possible and it's hard to hear all these things and not think that there is this huge relationship between all of them between trying to change the technology that we rely on, the internet that we use every day, and in that, to make it worse. I don't know how you feel about that, but it feels like all of these proposals just make things worse. And yeah, I'm just kind of thinking off the cuff there. That's it. <sighs> 
you raise a very, I, I agree with what you're saying, basically. It's a, it's a very true point. I mean, I try to step back from the technology. Um, and as you're doubtless familiar, there's this thing called Ranham's Law, which is you can't change or fix social problems with software. Uh, you have to address social problems in a social context. And one of the things that delights me is that GCHQ last year published a paper which said practically the same thing. They were pushing for client-side scanning, but they did say that all of the child abuse issues and the child sexual abuse imagery and the other things that they want to address through age verification as well, all of these are societal issues. And why are they trying to throw technology at them or put a burden on the platform and say, right, you guys fix it because you're making lots of money from social media, therefore this is your problem to fix. If we instead look at it as a public health issue, if we teach good online safety skills on not opening yourself up to embarrassment, how to avoid scammers, how to avoid phishing, how to protect personal data, all of these are scalable life skills. If you put a duty of care on a platform to address it, you're putting a tiny bandage on a huge social issue. Whereas if you actually teach kids how to survive in the internet, how to live in a way which doesn't get them into trouble and means that they are in charge of their online identities. You are creating skills for life that will be passed down through the generations and also will relieve costs of fraud and all manner of other things elsewhere. I think one of the challenges for this is that there are a whole pile of, I'll just call them sort of repressive demographics, who each has a vision of what they want out of age verification. Governments would love it if everybody using in the internet was required to register somewhere in order that they could be tracked backwards. The side effect of, you know, you know if you're over 18 to look at pornography or access abortion advice or something like that, that's a fringe benefit to being able to spy on everybody and surveil them and track them backwards next time there's a terrorist alert or something like that. Age verification providers, they see it as a way to get money through regulatory capture. The government says that they have to exist and therefore they get essentially free money where they would not otherwise have to exist. Then you get morality activists who see this as a proxy weapon that allows them to beat up anyone they don't like, which is porn, prostitution, abortion clinics, LGBTQIA, communities for free speech or for competing religious faiths. They can beat them up by obligating use of age verification and then later force withdrawal of those services to those communities or industries and thereby throttle them to death. And then at the far end, you've even got anti-porn activists who want to shut down porn as abuse, even if it is legal and protected speech. And they're trying to engage in a different kind of social engineering. They're trying to drive other people's morality and behavior to fit their social, political, or religious agenda. So there's a lot of people, a lot of disparate groups, each of whom looks at this thing called AV and sees ways it could profit them because all of the profiting that they want to take from it involves intermediating in a TCP connection. It feels like they're winning. And I just wanted to gauge how you feel about it. I think it's complicated because of this uh, spectrum of wants from this set of repressive communities. If you retrospect on the UK, 
It was really interesting that MindGeek in 2016 were saying that they had a solution, which is AgeID, which was to federate all of the other age verification solutions and provide essentially a, a single cookie, which will allow you log into all of the MindGeek properties, all of the porn sites and so forth. And it would also give them sort of godlike oversight of what is going on in adult content in the entire world from the UK. They said they would set up this solution that it would have 25 million subscribers in the first month. That was their advertised number. They thought they could create a new service and get 25 million subscribers in the first month. Wow. <laughs> they had this, or they say that they had this. They never deployed it. The requisite legislation went into the Digital Economy Act and then was never enacted. They never hit the on switch for that particular bit of the legislation. And nothing stopped them doing age verification. They could have gone and switched it on, but they held back until it was clear that the UK was never going to switch that bit of legislation on. They held back and even after that. They've never deployed age verification, even if they could. And so it seems that they want age verification to exist in an environment where it is legally obliged because they feel that they will lose out unless everybody has to do it. I wonder if that's what's happening in the USA. I, w I wonder, I have no evidence, so I'm just speculating here, but I'm wondering whether or not they are hoping to build essentially a consensus in favor of age verification or hoping that one arises in and of itself, and then they will have to switch it on for everybody and turn it into a thing, and then come riding in on a solution for age verification, which gives them a whole pile of benefit. It's kind of cynical view if that's the case. I rather hope that they are more interested in civil liberties, but I don't think that they are. I think it, the profit motive is strong in them. I want to end on a good note, and I'm trying to find one, but I also recognize that we already spoke about the fact that there are social problems here happening and that there are many ways to educate our kids on being safe online and protecting their identities online. And I kind of just want to hit on those again, because like you said, with, uh, with randoms a lot, like maybe we just need to address things by talking to kids. <laughs> That's kind of what this feels like. Let me give you a slightly more positive spin on it. Or at least what what I what I think still gives me some hope here. The technologies have not shifted very much in the past. Uh, what would it be? Uh, seven years since I first encountered age verification. There's a few new players in town. The mechanisms which were proposed back in 2016 in the UK were things related to credit cards like typing your credit card details into a porn site. Things related to phone, like getting an SMS sent to you after you're typing your phone number into a porn site. Really good one, logging into a porn site using your credit reference agency account. <laughs> that one came from one of the big credit <laughs> reference agencies. I won't oh, name it. I can't, rem I can't remember which one it was, but I've got a document which has got it all listed somewhere. <laughs> There were technological-based ones. There was one at the time which involved taking a selfie and taking a photo of your government ID and then uh, hitting a button on an app which would then send that data off to be verified in real time by some human being. And then you would go to your porn site and click a QR code and use your 
app to take a picture of that. And then the two would be cross-linked in some really clever, anonymous way. And then you could view porn. I was just thinking, that's cute. And it's also a nerd dream, and it's never going to happen. <laughs> Feels a little over-engineered, yeah. <laughs> yeah, same company, I believe, now is looking at age estimation using... Uh, artificial intelligence. And that sounds great. Like, oh, wow, you're going to use your phone to work out how old you are, but it'll never really tell who you are. Well, A, that's a big trust issue. <laughs> and I, I don't trust technology that much. But B, we're already in a world where there are TikTok filters to make you look younger, older, blonder, more beautiful, less beautiful, whatever else. <laughs> And likewise, I've been a Pokemon Go player for the past what, five years or something like mm -hmm. that. And mm -hmm. I know there are people who cheat by using location spoofers yeah. and so on. So all we're going to yeah. wind up doing is having people using dynamic filters on their phone to age them up and circumvent the age estimation process of these apps. Yeah. It's a never-ending war of attrition. If you want a glorious piece of um, silliness, go look at YouTube's age verification process. They literally have a web page, I'll send you a link, which describes how for each national identity card in Europe, which bits of the JPEG to redact before sending them, uploading a JPEG to YouTube in order to prove your age. So it's, it's stuff, you know, like you are allowed to cross out your national ID card number, but you must have the birthday. If you're in Hungary, use this card. If you're in the Netherlands, use that card, blah, 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 blah. It's a nightmare. Nobody's going to do that. And lots of lovely personal information is going to get uploaded to YouTube regardless. Um, mm -hmm. the, the word I'm reaching for here is train wreck. <laughs> and... So long as the technologies can be pointed out to be continually an ongoing train wreck or trivially circumventable or so on, it makes it hard, especially in a country where the First Amendment prohibits gatekeeping of access to legally protected speech. Between those two things, the USA might hold out long enough for the cracks in age verification to become apparent to more people. It's going to be a long road, and there's going to be an awful lot of um, legal dispute on the route there. But I think it may come out in favor of the open internet and the open web. You succeeded. I am more hopeful. Well done. <laughs> if, that was the, uh, if that was the goal, right, just to make one person feel a little more comfortable at the end of the conversation, well done. That's all I can say. Uh, Alec, thank you again for coming on today's show, but also for explaining all of this. There's a wealth of information here, and I know that it can feel, I think, to a lot of listeners like it's a bit esoteric. It is. Uh, and it's maybe beyond, you know, a scope of understanding, but it's something that it affects people in everyday ways. And again, I just wanted to thank you for coming on and exploring all of that with us. Oh, thank you. The, the battle cry of these people have, has always been either directly or mocked as being, could somebody think of the children? And I am thinking about the children because I want my daughter to grow up with a sort of untracked, secure, private internet when she's an adult. I want her to be able to have a private conversation. I want her to be able to browse sites without giving over any information or linking it to her identity. So I'm trying to protect that for her. I'd like to see more people grasping for that. To our listeners, 
We'll talk to you again in two weeks. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Mauerbytes Labs at mauerbytes.com slash blog. Finally, our intro music is by Kevin MacLeod from incompetech.com, and our outro music is by Woa from unminus.com. Today's show has been edited by our podcast consultant, Eric Johnson, at lightningpod.fm. Thank you, folks. Thank you.